Hello, and welcome to Employment Practices Solutions Real Solution Podcast, Workplace Training, Five Pitfalls to Avoid. This podcast is part one of our two-part series on pitfalls, hazards, dangers, risks, difficulties, snags, and stumbling blocks of some of the most important work that employment law and human resources professionals do in their roles, training and investigation. Today, we're tackling the pitfalls associated with workplace training. I'm your host, Lisa Dishman, and I'm joined again today by my colleagues Stephanie Davis and Denise Kay, who have combined more than 35 years of training experience at EPS. Both Stephanie and Denise have delivered thousands of training sessions in their time with EPS, and Stephanie and Denise are both licensed employment law attorneys. Stephanie, who's been with EPS for more than 17 years, currently leads the EPS organization as its president. She received her BS in political science from Barnard College at Columbia University and her Juris Doctorate from the University of Oregon School of Law. Stephanie practiced law in both New York and in New Jersey prior to joining EPS. Denise, too, has been with EPS for 17 years, both as past president and senior consultant. Denise is a recognized human resources and employment law expert. She graduated with a BA from Penn State University with emphasis in organizational communications and industrial psychology, and she received her Juris Doctorate from Georgia State University College of Law. You can learn the details and see the CVs of both my guests on our website, and I'll give you more details about that later in the podcast. Thank you to you both. Welcome, and I'm so happy you're joining me today. Let's dig right in with the first training pitfall. Training as a punishment or remediation effort. I've always thought training is about growing and learning, not about being punished. So talk to me, Stephanie. Give me uh, your uh, sense of why this is the first pitfall you might encounter when you're planning a training session, punishment. Well, I think this is unfortunately the reason for the launching of many training efforts. There could be a lawsuit or a complaint and an investigation, and it becomes clear that we need to do training uh, in response to that. So, you know, that is going to frame or, or set the tone of the uh, training effort from the get-go. So ideally, training is done proactively. Now, the reality is that we're often called to do training in response to a complaint or a lawsuit or just sort of general unrest in the workplace. And in those circumstances, which, you know, as, as I said, are unfortunately the case much of the time, it's important to be thoughtful about how to roll it out. So even in those circumstances, you can you can roll it out in a way with a message that conveys proactive or positive reasons for and goals of the training. So to that end, I think it, it makes sense to think about who's going to be attending each session. So if you're doing a number of sessions and have some choices about who attends each one, Think about it. If you've got a complaint or a lawsuit or, or you know, general unhappiness, you know, don't put people in the same session when you know they've got issues with each other or a history together. It's, you know, that's going to create tension, which will probably infect the whole class. From the get-go, it's important to think about how to roll out the training and who's going to be 
uh, attending the sessions. Denise, do you have anything to add? Yes, Lisa, thank you. Um, I think I listed this as the the top of the pitfall list because ideally, just like you said, that we look at training as an opportunity for development and growth. However, when it becomes more of a remediation effort, um, I've seen it, and I'll give you an example of uh, really failing. And for example, in my situation, there was a training that was scheduled as a result of an investigation, and they did an assessment into kind of some poor management behavior. And then the the outcome was that everybody was, you know, quote, forced to attend this mandatory training. Ironically, the only person that did not attend was the accused party, and it was so obvious to the rest of the workforce that that executive was not, in fact, there to be trained as the one who probably needed it the most. So it was a very ineffective way to show the organization that they really uh, were putting some some teeth behind the investigation and the, the outcome and the results. And, and unfortunately, it was it was a failure in that in that way. So we really want to make sure that if you're conducting training, that you're doing it for number one, the right reasons, and number two, just as Stephanie mentioned, with a proper audience and an audience that will be able to effectively intake the information and not feel subjected to punishment or any type of uncomfort, discomfort with the situation, depending on who is in the audience. That makes a lot of sense. But let me let me dig down just one bit deeper. And Stephanie, when you have a situation just like the one Denise mentioned, where there is an accused, and I'm using air quotes, or maybe multiple accused, and the HR or legal organization is looking at training for the entire organization as a refresher or a reminder in the wake of this, what do you do with individuals that may have been involved in the incident that led to the remediation training in the first place? Do you include them in training? Do you do a separate training for them? Can you give us some insight into that specific situation? Mm-hmm. Well, I think you have, I mean, you've got options and, of course, resources are going to play a part in, in, in the picture. But I think, you know, depending upon the behavior that we're talking about, certainly one-on-one coaching could be helpful and would provide a forum in which that person could really explore what happened, why it happened, how they could, you know, be different going forward um, in, a, in a candid way. Given Denise's example, we don't want to, not have them attend the larger, you know, the the larger scale training because then it's clear that, you know, it's glaring that they're absent. So I think you'd want them to be a part of the, the larger training initiative as well, but probably, you know, I wouldn't put them in the same class as the person who complained against them. I suppose there are other options. Denise, do you have, what, what, did, what ultimately happened in your case? Was that person trained individually, or did they just not have any training at all, which obviously doesn't seem like a good solution? Fortunately, in my situation, I was able to consult with the executive team, and that individual was coached one-on-one and has continued that coaching. So ultimately, not that the rest of the organization is aware of that fact, but this individual who did have some problems interacting with subordinates has had some one-on-one and very integrated coaching as to, into the concepts that were also presented to the larger group. You know, again, it was very obvious to everybody that he was not present, and we really had to kind of backpedal to 
fix things as far as the trust level with them. Um, but we've had mm-hmm. opportunities in this organization. They just happen to be a great organization that does provide a lot of development for their staff. So we, we have moved forward on that. But to, to kind of piggyback on what you were saying, if you, you know resources aren't available to do this intense one-on-one coaching, uh, there are ways to manage the situation. And I have recently worked with some organizations where usually when there is an investigation or some type of assessment that has determined that there might be some need for policy change or what have you, you can piggyback that training right off of a new hand- employee handbook, for example. So if you've recently revised some of your policies, it's a great opportunity to get those changes in front of your employees and to use that as a platform for educating and providing that training. So it doesn't, again, it doesn't appear to be any type of punishment or remedial. It's simply moving forward. We've made some changes. We've recognized that we needed to advance some of our policies, and here we are. We're presenting them to you now. So good ways to really get it the, the new information in front of people. And, you know, that reminds me, you know, we've done training where it's really unavoidable that there's been a complaint or complaints, and I've found that the most effective way to credibly address them is to upfront acknowledge them. So, so not have the, the, you know, the elephant in the room, but say, okay, we've had some complaints. There have been issues here. And what we're trying to do is create a respectful workplace, which is common ground for all of us. So with that as a basis for this training, let's move, move forward. I also, you know, had training where two people who were a complaint and a respondent in an investigation were inadvertently put in the same class just through chance. So it, it, I guess that's what I was alluding to before. Like, if you have choices, you know, like, be, be thoughtful about it. Think about it. Look at who they attend. Have somebody at least monitoring who's attending what session and does it make sense for those people to be in the same, in the same session. Those are all helpful suggestions. Let's move on to the second pitfall, and that is not being thoughtful about who's in the audience. That harkens back to to what you just said, Stephanie. Training to an auditorium, not knowing who's who in the training, that's a lot to consider in terms of class makeup, location, and so forth. Denise, do you want to kick that off? Let's kind of bifurcate that a little bit because I want to go back to Stephanie's point and we were talking about as far as who is in your audience. A good trainer will always ask the questions prior to the session as to who is going to in fact be there. (laughs) You know, are you mixing executives and subordinates? Is it going to be managerial only? You really need to know who, who is going to be present and I think that's a really important component. I had an experience once where the client failed to tell me that they also invited their vendors to the session and then midway through the training were disappointed that we had no examples about interactions between the client and their vendors. You know, I didn't know that there were vendors present, so I had to really scramble in the second half to create some examples that included the vendors so that they felt like they were part of that audience. So that's a really, you know, good reminder that you need to know who you're speaking to in the crowd. Second part is how big is your audience? And I know, you know, having been at EPS for over 17 years, it has always been our guide to have 25 or less in a session. And that's for a really good reason. And it's because we can't be interactive, which is a legal requirement in some areas and states um, with a bigger crowd. And my example there is I once showed up at the client venue for a training 
and it was a huge auditorium, and it looked more like a Broadway theater production. Because of the lighting, I couldn't see the participants, and they certainly really couldn't participate or ask a lot of questions because it was just too broad of a, a of a range of audience. So that's that's another component is really, you know, who's going to be there and how how is this material going to be presented and is it in a format in a room that is conducive to what you're trying to accomplish. Stephanie, I'll bet you have similar experiences and solutions to share that you've encountered. Sure, yeah, I've had the experience of of having to train in a in an auditorium where I've had to, you know, walk up and down the aisles with a microphone in order to hear anybody speak or to reach anybody. You know, it, that's not ideal. It eats up time. It inhibits connection and interactivity, which is what you really want to get through to people. But sometimes training a large class is, is necessary. Um, and, you know, if that's the case, hopefully you know that up front. And I would just be really clear with the client about the type of session that it's likely going to be, mostly a speech with limited, limited interaction. I would definitely, you know, be clear that I need a microphone, for example, up front. And, you know, since interactivity, what we, you know, what we always preach is interactivity is crucial for retention. So it's not optimal, but it's certainly better than not doing the training at all. So I think it's important to, to set expectations appropriately and, just to go to Denise's other point, which we've covered a, um, a bit here already, not knowing who, who's in your audience, you know, there are times no matter what, despite the trainer's best efforts, that they get to the training and they don't know, like Denise with the contract or vendor situation, you, you don't know that certain people are going to be attending. You know, sometimes that question is a moving target. Sometimes the person who's Log uh, in charge of the logistics for the training doesn't know themselves or has some new people thrust on them. So ideally, you know, we know who's attending ahead of time. Sometimes that's not possible. So in those kinds of situations, um, you know, thinking on your feet is a good tool to have. It's, it can be helpful, like, like, de like Denise did in her situation, coming up with some hypos that would be relevant to the new attendees, maybe doing some early brief introductions so everybody knows who everybody else is and you know where where they stand. And, and you know, go with the flow, really. I, I was um, very early on at EPS. I was hired to do training for faculty at a prep school, which was what I prepared for. And when I showed up, I found out that I would be training the entire school staff. So from not just faculty, but um, there was about 100 people including, you know, the groundskeepers and the people who were, you know, working in the kitchen. And so there were all kinds of levels of sophistication and understanding of language even. There were people who were speaking uh, English as a second, second language. So in the end, you know, we just made it work. And in, in, in that circumstance, patience and humor were, were really the way to work through it all. And I think, you know, the school thought it was a great success ultimately, but it certainly wasn't what I had anticipated walking in. Well, just to recap for our listeners, in the 20 plus years that EPS has existed in, and in all of the experience that both Denise and Stephanie have recapped in terms of their own training experiences, we have this firm experiential belief that the sweet spot is about 25 people. That maximizes the interaction. It maximizes retention. But there are ways to increase that size 
somewhat and still be effective, but the key is making certain that expectations are set and you know who is participating in the training to make it the best experience. So let's move on to the third pitfall, which is remote training. And again, kind of ties back to the second pitfall. I know we contend at EPS with these requests from clients quite often. Sometimes it's budget-driven, sometimes it's logistics, but sometimes it's the reality. So what are the pitfalls that we need to be aware of when we're thinking of doing remote training? Steph, Denise, who wants to kick this off? I'm happy to talk about um, remote training because this is a very recent experience for me and it's, it was very stressful. We recently had a client who insisted on my conducting a live session at one of their locations and claimed they had the technology to then remotely filter that information to several other locations, despite all of our best efforts and even taking our own EPS technology uh, specialist with us, the technology did not work. And the client was disappointed. I was disappointed because I knew from the get-go that I did not think that this was going to be an effective way to conduct training, but yet they were adamant. We've got several remote locations who can either get in or not get into the system, can't see me, uh, can't participate because they can't interact back with us. So it was a very stressful way to conduct the training. Um, I feel like the people that were live in the audience got a lot out of it. I don't know, know how much the remote participants could have gleaned from it even with the advances in technology, have to be very careful about how we format uh, our options. And simply because it's cost-effective for a client may not be the most uh, meaningful way to, de- to deliver very important information. Technology is, is really often the bugaboo here, and even the best tools can create challenges for the remote trainees. Stephanie, what do you have to add? I know you've had a great deal of experience in training remote workers as well. Well, I, I've, I've also learned the hard way that this, this setup, having people try to remote in in one way or another is, is just not likely to work well and will dis- uh, be disappointing to somebody and very challenging for the trainer. You know, we really promote training remote workers separately and that can actually be done very easy, easily with the technology that we now have. We can have a a separate session via webcast if they're you know far flung and you don't want to have a live trainer brought in or if that's just not if that's prohibitive a a, a live webcast you know won't disrupt the live class it'll be separate but can also be very effective in in reaching people that are scattered around the country and also be interactive at the same time but so we really try to dissuade the client and only would only embark on this type of a situation if the client insisted. And then, we, again, we would really be firm about setting expectations, and it, and it wouldn't be ideal. But, again, we go with the flow and, and, and deal with it if we have to. Go with the flow is key. So our advice is to train remote workers separately to the extent that you can, have the technology sorted so that there is interactivity um, involved in the class, and uh, know that EPS does have a webcast solution that we have, um, it's tried and true at this point, and that we know that works in those circumstances. So let's look at the fourth pitfall, 
which is so common and it's such a natural instinct that folks have when they're thinking about a training initiative. And that is cramming lots and lots, perhaps days of material into a one-hour program, trying to get it all sorted out in one hour. You know, budget is obviously a big consideration here, but the trade-off in terms of retention and the quality of the class is really destroyed um, in these kinds of efforts. So, Denise, do you want to talk a little bit about your experience in too much material in too short a period of time as a pitfall? Yes, Lisa. I would have to say this is probably the number one request um, that we get from clients, which is cover everything and you only have an hour, an hour and a half. And it's very difficult to first of all, do justice to all these topics. They change so frequently, and we have so many great legal examples and hypotheticals that really bring the message home, and you just can't possibly cover in any um, depth any one topic in less than an, you know, an hour, an hour and a half. And, and keeping in mind that some states require training to be a minimum of two hours uh, legally. So this whole kitchen sink idea is something that we really have to work hard with our clients to understand. And I you know, value that they are trying to respect their employees' time and obviously their budgets, uh, but we also want to be realistic in what we can potentially impart on them in a certain amount of time. And it's also, we mentioned this earlier, if we are on a shortened time parameter, there's much less interactivity and much more lecture. And that's not always ideal for an adult audience. Um, we, we really love to get them talking and get them engaged in each session. So it's important that we have an amount of material that is allowing us to be thorough and to engage them on a personal lever, level as well. That's our job as trainers is to really work with our client to make sure we understand what we're trying to cover, why, who needs to hear it, and how much time we can allow to be thorough and help our client retain that information leaving the session as opposed to just, you know, throwing a bunch of material at them that they can't possibly digest in a short amount of time. Yeah, I think empathy is important there too. As employment law and HR professionals, we're sort of steeped in these concepts all the time. But for the typical employee or supervisor, their work is the work of the business and having it all come at you quickly is can be overwhelming and really doesn't um, help in the retention that's so important here. Steph, how do you help a client prioritize what's important if they only have an hour or two to devote to training? What, what do you do as a trainer to help shape those sessions when time is limited? Well, I think this is where spending time up front talking with the client about what they want to accomplish, what their goals are, and how to do that effectively is going to go a long way. So ultimately, I would suggest that they triage, you know, what is realistic that they cover in the time that we've got to spend on this training. Otherwise, you know, we're wasting everybody's time and their money. So I would be firm, you know, I would really spend time listening up front and, and exploring what they want to, the takeaways to be. And then I would be firm about what we can realistically do in that allotment and hone in on their key goals. 
that leads me right into the fifth and final pitfall, which is having unrealistic expectations and goals to begin with, and that can be overlaid with no buy-in from the top. So those are biggies, and as you just alluded to, Steph, it has everything to do with shaping the class. So how do we avoid the pitfall? Steph, can you continue on with, with your thought? Sure, and we have a lot of 2020 hindsight and and failed um, training experiences based on, you know, really doing whatever the client wanted us to do and then learning the hard way that it uh, that it just doesn't work. So an example of that, many, many years ago, um, you know, we always preach uh, interactivity and it is very important in, in, in terms of retention. And the client uh, called us in to do an inter- interactive class and then when I showed up, there were over 100 attendees. This is a separate one from the prep school. It was at a factory where all of these people had just gotten off the night shift. So there were too many people in the class. They were tired. They weren't really in the mood for the training. It was not conducive to any sort of a productive training experience. So after having that experience, I would push back and say, okay, given that your goals are interactivity and retention of, of information, this isn't this isn't going to work the way, the way that you have it set up. So let's 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 brainstorm what you really want to accomplish here and how we can do it effectively. So I think really working with the client through a series of conversations to establish the content is important in terms of developing a class that is meaningful and is going to resonate uh, and be uh, retained. Denise, you've had a lot of work directly with executives um, in the process of developing training initiatives. Buy-in from the top is critically important. Tell us and our listeners what you've learned about how important that is and maybe how to extract that buy-in before the training initiative starts. Yes, Lisa, that is so true. I mean, in addition to unrealistic expectations that Steph spoke about, um, if there is no buy-in from the top, we're really setting ourselves up for failure. So the leadership really needs to set the tone, model the behavior they're seeking through this training that they're investing in. And if they are either not present or even worse, if there's a negative presence in the training, um, that's that they're either being uncooperative or unhelpful, or they're not paying attention and they're on a cell phone or what have you, or they're getting up and coming and going at, at their leisure, those things all set the stage for what the employees are taking away. So we really encourage our leadership to be present, to be interactive, to be engaged, and to promote whatever the content is that we are there to impart. That's the buy-in that you need. That's the modeling, the behavior that we want to, to emulate. So it's really important for us to make sure that if we're walking in to a client and their audience is, is you know, engaged that the the top people, the leadership either kicks it off, supports the content, and hopefully interacts and stays engaged with the content throughout the session. Stephanie, you're an executive of our organization. Do you have anything to add there? Yeah, I I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's this is probably one of the most, if not the most important factor in the success of a training initiative that's often uh, overlooked. 
leadership absolutely needs to demonstrate buy-in and, and, and do that in one of the ways that Denise suggested by, you know, kicking off the training um, with a, a short speech or introduction, certainly attending the training, a, a training session of, you know, executive leadership, certainly, and definitely not being a negative presence in the training session. We really, you know, can't expect people to take any training initiative seriously if the leadership isn't, isn't invested in it. Thank you, Stephanie and Denise. Let me do a quick recap of the five pitfalls that we covered in our discussion. The first was using training as a punishment or remediation effort. The second pitfall was not being thoughtful about who's in the audience, training to a large auditorium, and knowing who's who. There were a lot of considerations in that second pitfall. Third, training remotely. Fourth, cramming days of material into a one-hour or very short training session. And lastly, realistic expectations and goals not being set properly and no buy-in from the top. Thank you both, Stephanie and Denise, for alerting us to these pitfalls and providing examples and your hard-earned guidance and wisdom in how to avoid them in training sessions and constructing a training initiative. Thank you also to our listeners for joining us today. You can learn more about EPS and our services at our website, epspros.com. That's E-P-S-P-R-O-S.com. You can listen to this podcast and share it with others on both SoundCloud and in iTunes. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. We'd love to hear your feedback and better understand the employment practices challenge you face as an HR or employment law professional, and we hope you'll join us on upcoming podcasts. Thanks again.